Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Let me go get this ready. Right. Good morning, everyone. Um, You are listening to our special COVID-19 Green Left Radio, um, being recorded right now from Zoom. Um, On the line right right now, we have um, myself, Jacob. Um, We have Zane. In fact, we have the whole crew here, which is one of the benefits of recording this whole thing remotely. Um, So, yeah, good morning, everyone. me, Megan. (laughs) Yeah. So, I guess before... um, announce what's coming up in our program. Um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that this um, is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. Yeah. So um, I guess the main um, thing we, we're going to have a bit of a um, because it's been so long since you've probably heard from all of us, um, we thought we would have a bit of a relaxed kind of discussion about the COVID-19 crisis because I guess one of the things about the COVID-19 crisis is it has revealed a lot of things about the nature of the capitalist system, um, you know, from the fact that, you know, the whole nature of the pandemic requires people to essentially stay at home, um, but then the fact is that they're not being necessarily served um, by the state, and um, in fact, in fact, it's actually almost in a sense a matter of privilege whether you're able to stay at home or not, whether you're able to have a job that works remotely or not. Um, there's been the whole issue of this of a potential recession coming out of this. Um, there's a lot of issues in terms of how the social distancing laws have been measured, and since we last um, spoke in the program, there's been a lot of new um, restrictions sort of added in terms of. Um, um, social distancing, which are being, you know, applied in quite punitive ways. And then there's also the issue of, you know, what should the left be demanding in, in this period? What, what should the people kind of powered movements be um, demanding? So, and obviously another big issue is obviously the issue of housing. Um, and I think one of the other things I think about this crisis that it's revealed is how rapidly things are moving. Like, you know, it was only like, it would have been unforeseenable that um, New Start would be doubled. Um, it would have been unforeseenable that the government would be giving free childcare. Although, as it always with any sort of reform under a capitalist system, all these sort of reforms do have certain strings attached, and they're not necessarily socialist measures, even though they, yeah, they would, they would seem to be that way. So, yeah. Um, you, um, Anyone sort of want to start off a bit of a discussion about any particular topic? Yeah, um, yeah, these are unprecedented and uncertain times. And what I'm worried about is the fact that we now have a parliament that is now closed until I believe August. Is that right? It's August that they've closed parliament. Until well, they're going to be meeting um, today actually to pass the job seeker, um, yeah, the job seeker reform that's going through the parliament. Oh, okay. So, 
So do we have a situation where Parliament is now working but working from a distance, i.e. they're working digitally together, or do we have a, prob a Parliament that's not functioning, basically? Well, essentially what has happened is the Parliament has been suspended and essentially all the executive power is basically given to the ministers. So basically the ministers can essentially have the power to basically draft up any types of legislation. Because we're in a state of emergency, um, it basically, yeah, gives all the power to the executive, although there have been certain measures that the government has put forward, like the job seeker subsidy, which impacts on on wide swaths of, of people, especially workers and um, especially the question of awards, um, and that has had to go through the parliament. So, yeah, yeah. It, but basically the government does have quite unprecedented powers in this stage, but it's called not completely abnormal in terms of this crisis because, yes, we are in a state of emergency, but, of course, yeah, obviously there needs to be some case um, for parliamentary oversight and, you know, accountability because, um, yeah, basically the government can basically do anything they want, essentially. Um, yeah, Zane. Uh, yeah, well, just for the sake of listeners too, you just said that parliament is sitting today. We did record this on Wednesday morning, uh, so I'm not sure if parliament is still going. But, yeah, I think it's problematic that parliament is being suspended and uh, there was discussion at one point of having a sort of modified version of Parliament where they proportionally reduced the number of people that would be in the Parliament building for social distancing, uh, but still have the Parliament sit. And I think it is problematic that there's just this kind of mm, committee that gets set up and Parliament just gets suspended I think it's not uh, it's not very democratic and it's not it's not good, especially given some of the authoritarian um, measures that have been taken. That Parliament is also being suspended. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess to start off a bit of a um, a discussion, I guess one of the I guess one of the things that in terms of the current data, although this could be subject to change by the time this show um, goes live to air, um, but Relatively, in terms of how Australia is handling um, the COVID-19 pandemic, it does seem to be, in fact, Scott Morrison and the government actually released their modelling um, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it is actually looking, you know, from a certain perspective, it is actually looking quite positive. I mean, we're not doing as well as, say, South Korea or Vietnam, which took much more extra, um, which took much more extra measures um, to get the rise. In fact, in South Korea, it had a very overwhelmingly public health guided response um, instead of, you know, trying to have police enforce social distancing. Um, although some social distancing restrictions were implemented, they had temperature checks at, at supermarkets, um, temperature checks at, at workplace or within the public transit or sort of high traffic kind of areas. Um, I think, yeah, Australia is probably likely to avoid um, the worst case scenario, which is what Spain and Italy is um, is going through, or the what I would term the worst, worst, worst case scenario, which is Brazil and the United States, where you essentially have um, a political um, leader that doesn't even think the virus is actually a real thing or actually thinks it's as serious as it should be taken. Um, yeah, Megan, you wanted to say something? Yeah, um, I do think we need to take a leaf out of um, Vietnam and South Korea's book, but also Taiwan. Uh, like Vietnam, they have taken 
uh, a very aggressive support um, strategy. So basically, uh, yes, you you are restricted in your movements, you are you know tested and monitored, etc. But they have a really good and very quick response uh, support network. They'll call you and say, do you need anything? And they'll be over within minutes in many cases. They're providing, like Vietnam is providing, food packages for people. And I don't believe that the food packages are actually you know means tested or anything like that. It's literally to everyone who has to isolate. Uh, this is a, a sort of the gold standard of what the way that we should be running uh, any kind of um, pandemic lockdown, uh, basically getting food and support to the people who need it so that they're not uh, limited in their ability to respond to a lockdown. As you mentioned, a lot of people don't have a choice about whether they can work or not. They have to go out and earn a wage. And as Zane and I were talking before uh, the show started, uh, there's some people who may not be getting payments for quite a delayed amount of time. What are they doing for food? What are they doing for rent? You know, has the uh, has the government mounted a response and hired extra Centrelink staff to deal with the inevitable backlog of processing these payment claims? Um, and but what are we doing in the meantime? This is the support thing that we should be looking to Vietnam and and Taiwan and South Korea for the gold standard of support for people who need it, not just for the businesses who need it, basically. Yeah. And yeah, I think, um, I guess one of the, um, one, I guess, yeah, while, um, Australia is, this response is clear. I mean, in fact, we've done more testing, you know, per capita than some other countries. Um, although that's within a fairly kind of narrow kind of testing criteria, although there has been some developments where they are expanding the testing criteria. But I do think that, one of the demands that the left um, has been putting forward is that there is a need to, to actually um, expand the testing criteria and to implement kind of mass testing. But obviously, because of the nature of the capitalist system, the capitalist system has not actually planned for this crisis. Um, and in fact, one of the things that the... Um, that this crisis reveals about the inadequacy of the capitalist system is essentially all the countries are actually dependent on the whims of the market um, to um, buy up um, testing kits, etc. So in Australia, we're currently having a shortage of um, of, of testing kits, and um, that's why the testing um, criteria hasn't been able to be expanded beyond the narrow criteria that has already been set up. Um, and you know. There was actually this funny, I remember there was this funny comment I kind of read on Facebook, um, and it, and it kind of delves into some anti-Chinese racism. But basically, there was this whole criticism of, of, of China for buying up, you know, some of the necessary testing equipment, um, when this crisis was, um, heating up in Wuhan. Um, and, you know, essentially, it was sort of making the argument that, you know, China had no right to buy up and hoard up all the testing kits, etc. Well, you know, if you're, if you support capitalism, that is essentially the capitalist system working as it intended. If, if you have a, if, if it, if it's based on a market, then yeah, capitalists essentially have the right to be able to buy, or especially capitalist states have the right to buy up the products that they need, um, at, at cost. And, um, you know, the only alternative, um, to that is actually that of a planned economy, that of actually planning around production on the basis of human need. In fact, there is some discussions, in fact, I heard a number of weeks ago, that they are considering, um, you know, turning Ford um, into uh, into a, a place where they build, where, which um, use the manufacturing to build um, ventilator kits. Um, yeah. 
Well, this is the the thing. Um, you know, obviously in a so-called free market, uh, it's supply and demand, but we've actually seen in this situation that supply cannot meet demand in such a crisis situation. And this, I think, is where we need to talk about um, appropriating factories uh, and bringing them into the public hands, at least temporarily, to manufacture these essential things, essential test kits for the coronavirus, essential ventilators, essential personal protective equipment, all of these sorts of things. We need to have a faster response. And what we found is the capitalist system cannot respond fast enough uh, to the demand. We're also seeing um, a situation in the US where the US has basically appropriated orders. I believe it appropriated an order, I, I can't remember which uh, country it was, of it was a small country, 20 ventilators. It basically took them away from this country. And they've also done that with Germany, I think it was with face masks. Uh, and they're also talking about um, restricting medical supplies to Canada, et cetera. This is, I guess, the free market in operation. We're not coordinating with each other. We're relying on the free market to produce these products that are absolutely essential. And we're in no way coordinating and appropriating factories to produce these things that save lives. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll just echo that as well. There's been this sort of bidding wars, both within the probably the most extreme example is in the USA, where the different state governments, the different uh, hospitals are bidding for limited supplies of PPE and uh, medical equipment and bidding up the price, which is just utter lunacy. And then, uh, as you've just said, Megan, at an international level, most of this stuff due to uh, the offshoring of production, a lot of this PPE and, and machinery is manufactured in China and the USA has currently been uh, engaging in bidding wars literally as planes are on the tarmac about to deliver stuff to France or Germany or wherever else, the US will swoop in and say, look, we will pay whatever it takes to make sure that that plane full of PPE comes to the USA instead. So that's just insane in and of itself. But it also speaks to a broader lack of planning around a pandemic. Uh, medical experts, epidemiologists have been warning for some time, we are not properly prepared for a pandemic. We should have big stockpiles of this type of medical equipment and PPE so that when this happens, We've got a big stockpile that we can draw down and we're not all fighting over a limited supply of this stuff. That stockpiling has not occurred. So there's a lack of planning that's happened there. And now there's a lack of planning around the rational distribution of these limited supplies of, of PPE and machinery. As this stuff is produced, it should be getting distributed at cost price based on need, not there shouldn't be this bidding war. So it's, yeah, it's, it's lunacy. I've read a really good book and I'd recommend it to people. It's called The People's Republic of Walmart. How, uh, how capitalism is laying the foundations for socialism or something like that, or how the world's biggest corporations are laying the foundation for socialism and talks about how within individual large corporations, there's actually already economic planning. You don't have a market economy internally within large corporations. 
And when that has been tried, when there's been experiments in having an internal market economy within corporations, it's been an unmitigated disaster. And what we're seeing in the USA at the moment with different states, different health departments bidding for uh, limited supplies of PPE and medical equipment is kind of like the equivalent of when corporations have experimented with a internal market economy. It's incredibly destructive and it's, it's, it's a terrible thing. The other thing is we're seeing these shortages of toilet paper. Megan, you mentioned food distribution in Vietnam and how that's actually assisting and making the lockdown function a lot more smoothly. I think, uh, yeah, one of the interesting things about the crisis that's happening at the moment, it's not just that the, that there's a universal basic income or that Centrelink has been increased or that there's talk of uh, a rent moratorium, but also this question of economic planning versus the market is, is, um, thrust into the limelight. And I think mm. since the collapse of the USSR, economic planning hasn't really been talked about as much, but I think this is a really good time to revisit. Everyone's got apps these days. It's, it, it's not a, it would be so much easier for people to say, right, I need toilet paper, milk, bread, some cans of this, some rice, blah, blah, blah. And if we could aggregate all of this stuff through apps in our homes and have the stuff distributed and delivered and not have people going to shopping centres and then queuing up and then having this kind of panic buying. All of that stuff doesn't actually need to be happening right now. Mm. No. Although, although one caveat I'll, I'll sort of say about that, I mean, I do support um, that kind of distribution of food um, within a planned economy, but I think the, the kind of necessary precondition for that to happen, um, just so people aren't left behind, is that, you know, the likes of Woolworths and Coles have to be put into under public ownership. They can't just be allowed um, to be private operators that make massive amounts of profits. And, in fact, companies like themselves are probably ma- making massive profits out of this crisis. They probably love the fact that their people are panic buying um, toilet paper, et cetera, because it creates such this inflation of, of demand that they're making huge kind of profits. And meanwhile, despite these massive amounts of profits that Coles and Woolworths are making out of this crisis, they're still refusing to implement basic safety measures for, for the workers. Um, in fact, the work, um, in fact, I, whenever I go to Coles and, um, and Woolworths, you know, it's quite on a busy day. There's social distancing is barely being practiced in, in, in actual reality. And the fact is that it, it appears that workers aren't even being provided with, um, because one of the interesting things when I go into the supermarket is it says, um, um, please use hand sanitizer before you come in. And I'm like, wouldn't it actually make more logical sense for Coles and Woolworths to actually use the security guards that they have to actually provide hand sanitizer sanitizer. um, on entry? Like it just seems, that seems to be an idea that kind of makes too much sense actually. Like just a basic measure like providing hand sanitizer upon entry seems like the most rational thing that a company like Coles and Woolworths with their massive amounts of profits could easily invest money into. Yeah. 
Um, actually, when you mention hand sanitizer, um, Coles has brought up a huge amount of non-alcoholic hand sanitizer, which I believe has um, found, been found not to actually be effective um, with regards to getting rid of the virus. And they're still trying to convince their workers that everything's okay, just use this hand sanitizer. Uh, there's stories of managers hoarding the hand sanitizer and not using it for workers. Uh, and as an example of um, something that another company has done and, and treated its workers better, Aldi's actually got now got Perspex screens in front of their um, their checkout people, and they are also providing them with masks and gloves and hand sanitizer, appropriate hand sanitizer. And uh, you mentioned that um, you know Coles and Woolies is probably making a bunch of money off this. It's almost certain they're hiring tens of thousands of extra staff to deal with the demand. They're definitely profiting off this. The least that they can do is protect their workers, provide PPE, provide hand sanitizers, put the Perspex screens up. Um, but this is obviously something that isn't seen to be um, you know, in any way appropriate. And of course, this is again the free market talking. And if they can make as much money as they can off that without providing their workers, um, you know, safety equipment, etc., then they will. And there will be no ramifications. And this is the problem with our system. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to um, leave a bit of a, a kind of um, gap here, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, not sure what time it will be when you're listening to this, um, but yeah, we'll play uh, just a quick short announcement. Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mulbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, not sure what time it is. Hopefully, it might be around 7:30 a.m. Um, but yeah, just the issues. <laughs> Let's not even go with the time. <laughs> issues, um, the issues when you're doing a pre-recording and you have no good sense of time. Now, um, just yeah, we're, we're just talking about um, some of the issues um, that the COVID-19 crisis is really revealing about the nature of the market. Um, and how, you know, capitalism is really not equipped to kind of deal with this kind of pandemic. And I think one other issue I sort of want to sort of talk about um, that this crisis kind of reveals is the issue of housing. Um, 
And essentially, the announcements and the measures that have been announced by the um, Morrison government is he's announced some kind of moratorium um, on on evictions, but at the same time has not committed to any rent freezes or um, even um, um, for 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 um, people who are living in rental apartments or rental houses, um, which I just think is completely um, ludicrous. And there are even reports of basically with a lot of people, um, there's going to be a lot of people this month who are probably not likely able to pay rent. And so many individuals um, have been trying to negotiate um, with their real estate agent around lowering the rent in some way or having a bit of a, you know, easing off or getting a rent discount, etc. And some real estate agents have actually responded in quite a despicable way, including trying to give people financial advice, like encouraging them to apply for Centrelink as if they haven't already applied to Centrelink because you can't get the, the increase until April 27th. Um, or even more despicable, they're advising people how to draw out of their superannuation. Um, so basically, Which, by the way, is completely illegal. Absolutely illegal. Yeah, they are absolutely. not qualified for, to give financial advice. Yeah, so I think it's absolutely great when people are starting to organise a rent strike in response. Um, so there is going to be a, a rent strike happening with a number of individuals participating um, to sort of counter this and making the kind of demand that there needs to be a rent freeze um, and that people, you know, there should actually be a, a relaxed period where people shouldn't have to pay rent in this period. And also the other issue is people who are homeless on the streets, they should be appropriately housed. And, um, yeah, I, I guess Megan wanted to, um, wanted to comment a bit more on this. Yeah, it's really unclear what's happening with um, that eviction freeze. I mean, if you can't pay rent for six months, does that mean at the end of that six months or however, however many months that you can't because you don't have money, because you literally are not being um, provided money by the government and you don't have a job and you, you can't get a job, uh, does that mean at the end that you owe all of this money and then they can kick you out after that, um, that moratorium on evictions? How does it work? And what happens at that point? Are we going to get to a situation where come six months down the track, we have so, so many people who've literally not been able to pay, pay their rent. Are they then kicked out? Uh, are they taken to debt collectors? How does this all work? And it's, it's not particularly clear to me because I'm a renter as well. I mean, these are, these are some of my concerns. How does it work? And how do we deal with this? Because this is, this is a community thing. This is happening to a mass number of people. And it is definitely something that needs to be addressed, um, but has not been addressed. There's, there's too many questions that have been left hanging. Yeah. Yeah, I think the uh, economics of it are problematic as well, because the moratorium is pretty much toothless. There's no legal provision that says uh, landlords have to pass on any mortgage pause. There's no provision that says banks are not allowed to continue charging mortgages at the moment. And people were having enough trouble affording rent before this crisis. Uh, the idea that people are somehow going to, average workers are going to somehow magically be able to pay double rent or something at the end of this moratorium to, to be able to like back pay their unpaid rent on top of their new rent. That's assuming they even magically find a job the day after the lockdown is lifted. It's a real problem. And it's, uh, it's 
deeply problematic that um, it, it basically subsidizes um, uh, the banks because the, the whole idea of a stimulus around this is that it's... Um, yeah, well, I guess um, I think um, it's really, I think, impo- important that I think we, um, at this, in this period, that we actually demand rent freezes um, and that demand, there should also be um, um, a ban on, um, there should be freeze on mortgages, um, there should also be, and in some ways, the government, um, in terms of, like, the whole issues of, um, you know, workers not being able to pay um for the rent that they owe because landlords are perfectly capable, even if the government were to implement uh, a rent freeze uh, of trying to chase up on lost um, rent after, after this crisis is over. And of course the government could easily step in and, you know, subsidize landlords if, if needed be um, for the rent that they are apparently owed. Um, but, you know, the fact is the government is trying to, take this sort of approach that, um, in fact, Scott Morrison tried to say, you know, when it comes to your landlord, you should just try and negotiate um, with them and because, you know, you're all in this together, um, despite the fact that there's one person who, who has more power over in this relationship than the other. Yeah, um, it's interesting to note that apparently uh, private renters are supposed to individually negotiate with their landlords, but commercial renters, they had a meeting about that and, um, you know, getting government support with regards to um, commercial renters. It's interesting because it doesn't seem to be that uh, we're all in this together. If you're a private renter, well, you know, fend for yourself, basically. Yeah. It's very interesting. I actually wanted to talk about Zane was uh, mentioned this uh, previous to the recording of the show uh, about Spain's implementation of a universal basic income uh, during the COVID-19 crisis and the fact that they are looking to keep this as a permanent thing as well. Um, what do you have to say about that, Jacob? Oh, well, maybe get past it to Zane if he wants to comment a bit more. Uh, yeah, so something I was just trying to say before is that part of the stimulus, the, the different stimulus measures that Morrison has been implementing is aimed at building up or, or kind of reinforcing aggregate, aggregate economic demand in the economy. And what that means is if a whole bunch of people lose their jobs and don't have any spending money, they can't go and get that haircut and buy the hamburger and, you know, spend their money on all these different little things, which creates economic activity. So by increasing Centrelink, by having a JobKeeper payment, by having potentially a pause on rent, although it's not a real pause on rent, and that's a problem, uh, by implementing these measures, it puts spending money in average workers' pockets, which keeps economic activity going. Now, if workers at the end of this moratorium thing have to back pay all their rent to their landlord, and then that's going into a mortgage and it's basically just ending up with the banks again, that doesn't boost aggregate economic demand. It just boosts bank profits, and that's not what's needed right now. And so it's a real problem, and I think 
if you're going on rent strike and you're saving up a little bit of money, guess what? You're actually doing the economy as a whole a favour because you're going to come out the other side of it and you're going to have a bit more ability to buy things like groceries or a hamburger or a haircut instead of pumping all your money into your landlord's pocket and not having any spare cash to buy basic, um, you know, cost of living things. So, and the UBI that's happening in Spain, that's interesting because that will have the effect of creating aggregate economic demand, which, which sort of stabilizes the economy as a whole. Yeah, just a bit of comments on the UBI. Um, I think, you know, I, I sort of have some criticisms of um, UBI as a concept because I do think one of the issues with UBI as it will be implemented in a lot of capitalist countries is it is essentially, you know, in some ways attempting to re- reinforce that kind of economic kind of transition. Um, it's basically a way of keeping um, most of the working class being kept as consumers to keep the kind of economy going and doesn't necessarily empower workers. Um, so I think one of the things about this crisis um, that is quite revealing is it does reveal the contrast, the importance of building independent working class power um, because essentially, you know, while the government is handing um implementing all these stimulus packages, et cetera, um, it's not necessarily putting workers in a more empowered position if they don't have um if they're not if they're not building if they don't have any independent power or means to actually win these demands outright. Because essentially what the government is doing is they're implementing all these demands to keep um workers happy, keep them secure, etc. But they're just as likely easily going to take them away. In fact, the Morrison government hinted as such, where he basically said in terms of like an exit strategy for COVID-19, he basically doesn't envision um, an exit strategy that involves keeping these reforms in place that um, like the job seeker subsidy, etc., for more than six months. And so that's clearly the trajectory of the government. They want to make, um, they clearly want they, they're responding to this crisis in the best way they possibly can within the framework of the capitalist system, but they basically want to go back to business as usual as soon as this is all over. And I actually think when you look at a kind of long view of um, the economic trajectory, I don't actually think there is going to be a going back to normal, um, and we are actually going to be looming into a potential recession as a result of this crisis, because when you think about it, when, econo- um, when the economy is put on such a hold for a long period of time, how is the capitalist state going to try and restart things back? Because there'll be, for one, there'll be a lot of businesses that will probably be not have much capital. In fact, they, one of the work, um, they will be barely be able to accumulate any capital and capitalism relies on accumulation of capital. And there'll be certain capitalists that will come up on top, but then there'll also be another section of capitalists which will go way down the bottom, um, with all their shares going down, et cetera. So I think that we are looming into a potential recession as a result. I mean, I'm not an economics expert, but I do see it coming. And I think the, the real challenge is going to be how can we build a working class movement that ensures that workers aren't made to pay for the crisis that is actually of the capitalist own doing and of, of the dysfunction of the capitalist system. Um, I think that's actually a really good point in not making workers pay. Um, you know, we were talking about the fact that this could go one of two ways after the crisis, um, before the actual uh, show. 
um, in that we could implement austerity measures to, you know, recoup the costs that we have, um, you know, that, that governments have um, outputted in the time. And those austerity measures would directly uh, impact on workers. Uh, there might be no talk of recouping, uh, you know, taxes owed from the rich. What about the corporations that, um, that aren't paying any tax at all, but have billion dollar turnovers and profits? Um, we could go down that austerity way, or we could go down um, the way of, and I guess we can talk about this later in the show, of something like a Green New Deal to have as a stimulus package at the end of this to uh, mitigate or perhaps avoid, um, you said, a recession. I think we're probably more looking like a depression at this stage, um, a worldwide global depression. Um, but, yeah, I think that we need to push for these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, that's, that's probably all I have to say on that thing. And I guess what I would love to start talking about is, you know, the authoritarian measures that have been implemented, what's necessary, what's not, what's in our own interest and what's simply a punitive measure, both here in Australia and also across the world. Okay. So yeah, you're listening um, to Green Left Radio. Um, I'll just play um, a quick announcement. Um, and then we'll move on um, to talking about our next kind of phase in our kind of discussion. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out... Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music Matters. The Hip Sister Hop Show. The Heavy Session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig. Sweet Dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, on the line, we have um, Zane, myself, Jacob and Megan for our special program in recorded remotely on um, in the comfort of our homes in the age of COVID-19. Um, yeah, so we're just discussing um, some of the, the issues around housing and the economics of this whole crisis, how there's a potential looming recession coming out of this. There's the whole issue of the fact that um, housing security has never been posed as a more important question. The issues of real estate agents, the fact that the government is not actually implementing really any real measures. 
Now, I guess the next thing I want to um, we, we want to start a discussion about is this whole issue of authoritarianism um, in the age of COVID nineteen. Because I guess in one thing, one of the things about this crisis and world health experts, um, the World Health Organization, all medical experts say that one of the things that needs to be implemented in this crisis and the majority of countries is there has to be some serious lockdown of um, of 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 the economy, um, and that involves very quite quite severe restrictions on people's individual movement. People should be um, have to have to stay at home. Um, they can't have gatherings larger than probably two people. Um, you can't um, you can't host parties. You know we have to take a, a huge hit in terms of the restrictions that we have to take place. Um, so governments have been across the world have been implementing these um, lockdown measures in various ways, some more authoritarian than others. Um, in fact, the most relaxed example is probably Sweden, but in fact, Sweden is actually probably the wrong example. Um, it's, it's an example of a country that's actually completely ignoring all the recommendations from scientists to implement social distancing restrictions. And in fact, Sweden's actually not looking quite good at the moment. But within, um, within Australia, um, I think, you know, they have... Um, as of last week, or I think it was two weeks ago, that we have now moved in a kind of stage three lockdown where there are now much more heavier restrictions on people's kind of personal activity. You're not allowed to gather in more than two groups. But I think one issue, I think, with how these laws have been implemented, in contrast to, say, New Zealand, although New Zealand, I've heard there are some criticisms of their lockdown approach, um, there is an issue of the fact that they have um, essentially given police um, powers to basically issue fines for people breaking di um, social distancing. And the other issue with that is it's up to the police's own discretion on what constitutes a violation. And you can see a really good example of this um, in a sense that they, um, that in Victoria, the police fined uh, a family for taking their daughter out to be uh, as a learner driver, which, you know, while you, you, while you're not really necessarily allowed to go out for a non-essential non reason, and of course it's a necessary restriction, going out for a drive to learn how to drive seems to me the most essential, one of the more, uh, a completely valid reason to go outside, especially since it's completely safe, there's no harm done to anyone. And also it would actually, for most families, it, this would actually be the perfect time to take, um, to teach a short old how to drive because there'll be barely any traffic on the road, etc. So um, that fine has since been withdrawn, but yeah, the fact that it even happened is poses an issue for for um, for these um, police powers that have been given essentially by the state government with no parliamentary oversight. Yeah, I think this highlights um, the the idea of the, there being two different approaches. There's a support and an education uh, lockdown, and then there's a, a lockdown that in, involves punitive measures. Now, in the case of that um, mother and daughter, and uh, you know, being out on a driving lesson. As you mentioned, there is no risk to anyone else. They are practicing physical distancing. Though that mother and daughter are part of a household that are isolating together. They're in a car with a physical barrier between them and anyone else that's not part of their isolation bubble. There was no reason for that. Um, you know, but we see this punitive measure being taken. Um, and, and it's good that it's actually, uh, ha has since been withdrawn, but why are we not educating our police on um, saying that this is more of a service and educational thing? We are, you know, the police should be out there 
um, stopping people from not, you know, from from uh, being in close quarters with people who aren't in their isolation bubble. But we shouldn't have the emphasis on fines and punitive measures. It should be this is in the interest of the community. This is why we're asking you to do this. Uh, and, you know, marginal, marginal societies, marginal people, the homeless, um, you know, Indigenous Australians, etc. Um, I've seen on the, the list of fines that a lot of these people are being targeted. Now, there should be some kind of understanding for, for them. There should be some kind of support. I mean, this is the whole idea. Support should be there uh, for people who don't have a home to isolate in, uh, for people with uh, mental health issues, uh, etc., but we don't seem to have that. We have a punitive lockdown rather than a support and an education lockdown. Yep, yeah. same. Yeah, I think uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what unions are and are not doing a bit later. But uh, to me, there's this idea that there's this idea of a consensual lockdown uh, where the, there's a government... Um, advisor, the chief medical officer or whatever, and the government says, all right, we're moving to stage three lockdowns. Uh, but then it's up to society to implement those measures in a consensual and voluntary manner. It's, it shouldn't be up to the state to go around fining people $11,000, $16,000, depending what state you're in, huge amounts of money. I've heard reports from New York of police going around and arresting people for not socially isolating, typically, as Megan points out, people of colour, marginalised communities, arresting them and then taking them and putting them in a bloody jail cell that's crammed with people. It's just lunacy. It's not about uh, actually implementing social distancing. It's just about the state expressing its power over people and expressing its ability to crush people's face in the dirt. Um, now, I'm a member of the construction union, which has uh, prominently campaigned, along with the Master Builders Association and the bosses, to keep construction sites open. Now, the effect of that is to undermine this big society-wide uh, voluntary or consensual uh, push to uh, self-isolate. And I think that's really, in the absence of police going around and giving fines, to have an effective lockdown, it's got to be about unions and progressive um, political organisations, community organisations, all banding together and popularising the idea of the lockdown, why it's important for public health. And I think that's it's it's self-evidently a possible thing. Before all of these fines and new police powers came in, there was already a pretty high uptake of people self-isolating because people get it. The message is getting around. And, yeah, there's a minority of people that still go out and congregate in groups. And, yeah, I mean, what do you do about that? Maybe the police should give cautions or something. I don't know. But I think this idea that the police should be out there you know, finding people huge amounts of money and locking them up is just, it's not a solution. It's a, it's a real problem. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, I wanted to just at this point, I think it's a good point um, to mention uh, the fact that there are, I think, almost 1,500 uh, refugees locked up at the Mantra Hotel in Preston. Uh, that's a huge issue. So, you know, the rest of society is practicing social distancing and the government is saying for us to practice social physical distancing. Yet the government who have locked up these refugees are locking them up in a single floor and it is actually impossible for them to practice any kind of physical distancing from each other. And some of them are, you know, they've come from quite strenuous circumstances. You know, they've been persecuted in their own countries. Uh, many of them have uh, medical conditions, pre-existing medical conditions. Um, it is an absolute uh, uh, bunch of tinder waiting to explode into flame with regards to contracture of COVID-19. All it takes is for one of the staff members uh, or one of the guards to, to come in, be COVID-19 positive, give it to those refugees, and it will spread like wildfire through them. Now, the government is responsible for these people, and yet they, they are not in any way able to practice the physical distancing that the government requires. This is a human rights issue, like the prisons, which uh, there has been some talk um, of prisons of, of you know, uh, releasing, doing an early release for nonviolent offenders, etc. Why are we not talking at all about the refugee situation in the Mantra Hotel? It is an absolute human rights travesty. Uh, they cannot practice what we are legally required to do because they are locked up like cattle in that hotel. And it, it's um, definitely something that we should be campaigning uh, to, to have remedied. I think, yeah, another, um, I think both Zane and you yourself, Megan, actually bring up another issue with how this lockdown has been implemented. And that is the issue of state hypocrisy. And, you know, while Daniel Andrews and Scott Morrison can lecture people about, you know, some idiot decided to organise a beach party or something like that um, and, and so on, they're not actually, in a sense, showing any real leadership um, when yeah. it comes to implementing this lockdown because, for starters, Scott Morrison has actually been refusing to close down the schools um, federally. Um, Daniel Andrews has refused to um, shut down to take action and shut down the construction sites and, of course, other non-essential workplaces. Um, and, of course, I think I heard, overheard, I heard from someone told me that um, Daniel Andrews went on about how, yeah, construction projects are still going to continue in this period. Um, and, of course, previously, um, Daniel Andrews' government had to be pushed to cancel the Grand Prix, despite the fact it would have been clearly a terrible idea to host it. Um, and then, yeah, there's a, um, there's another issue about how, um, another example of hypocrisy was the ex example of these New South Wales police officers who were caught, um, at a, up at a party in a, an apartment. And of course, this is the, the height of hypocrisy because these police officers are the ones who are enforcing these laws and yet they're breaking it and all they get was a fine. In fact, I think essentially those police officers should be stood down from the force completely like it's it's like they are on a much higher because they're in a higher position of power um they're not just some random young idiot they actually get have a badge and have a gun um and are, are delivering these punitive laws so i think yeah it's, it's a it's the kind of high hypocrisy and yeah the fact that the government 
um, even in countries like Italy and Spain, which in some sense have actually implemented even a stricter lockdown more um, than um, than Australia has, although the actual situation itself um, calls for it because it is actually quite dire um, there to the point where it think, I think it is quite justifiable that people can't actually leave their house anymore in some sense. Um, but, you know, in Italy, um, there are some workplaces that were still being run. Um, that are completely non-essential and workers have to go on strike to actually get those work, workplaces shut down. So I think, yeah, one of the issues I think with the lock, um, with lockdown as implemented is it's not completely equal. It has to be, the lockdown has to apply equally to both the working class and, um, and the, um, and the capitalist class. It can't just be one rule for one, um, none, for, um, um, none for the others. So I think, yeah. The fact that um, this, um, the way these laws, the focus on the individual disproportionately impacts on working class people, why are we expected to sacrifice all our individual liberties when the same expectation isn't kept, um, isn't um, applied to the capitalist class? <laughs> uh, definitely. And I think um, with regards to authoritarian measures and the hypocrisy of applying it to one group um, and not applying it to another, um, I believe the Ruby Princess, um, uh, the, the uh, guests of the Ruby Princess, when they uh, disembarked, there was no uh, kind of, um, there was no testing, there were no restrictive measures. The Ruby Princess passengers were just simply told to isolate when they got home. And a lot of that means um, people crossing borders into different states, etc. So there was really, um, it's, you know, it's one rule for one, one rule for the other. I believe, I heard a rumour, I don't know how substantiated this is, but there were passengers on the Ruby Princess from the Hillsong um, uh, organisation, which um, Scott Morrison is a member of. Um, you know, how this might have affected any kind of measures put on them, I don't know, but that is absolute hypocrisy that these people were simply able to walk off that boat um, and boat, as we know, cruise ships have been instrumental in the spread of this virus. It is absolutely essential to test passengers as they come off those ships and to track those that actually test positive and to implement isolation measures for all of them, strict isolation measures, because this is a definite pathway to um, infection um, cruise ships. But that whole authoritarian um, implementation was not done for the Ruby Princess. Uh, it, it's definitely hypocr hypocritical. Yeah. Well, I think we'll, we might just take a quick um, pause and, um, from there, um, maybe moving on to sort of the last kind of phase um, of our discussion, which is what the left kind of response should be. Um, um, just before, um, I'd like to play a song, um, which is, um, by a Kurdish, Kurdish refugee, um, Kazim Kazimi. Um, and he's basically, um, wrote a song about the COVID-19 risk for refugees and attention. And I think that would be, um, quite an appropriate thing to play. So, yeah, stay tuned listeners and have a, have a bit of a listen. Bye, this is 
So you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, we were just discussing um, the kind of puni- um, the issues of authoritarianism and um, and lockdowns, while ultimately supporting um, the um, restrictions on people's personal activity. We we sort of had a bit of discussion on how you know the the the, hip- the issues of the hypocrisy of the state, etc. And you know, and I think to segue into a kind of new discussion, I think is. I think one of the things that has been quite expiring about the COVID-19 um, response has been the power of community and ordinary people kind of self-organising themselves, you know, because for all this, you know, this blame put on, on people, like, for example, the main, um, the, the mainstream media was going on about, you know, panic buyers, going on about how people were flaunting the rules and ignoring social distancing. Um, you know, the reality on the ground is actually people have been self-organising themselves to prepare for this crisis at a much greater rate than what the government has been prepared to act on. And it's only been through pressure from below that the government has been prepared to act. And, um, you know, a good example is starting as um, when this crisis first started, there was a number of mutual aid, a number of mutual aid networks have been established. Um, and in fact, this has been happening. This is a worldwide phenomenon. In fact, it's happening in the UK. It's happening in the United States at a much greater rate um, where people are coming into, um, you know, um, organised delivery of food for people of a run, um, of in, in runnable, in a runnable risk categories. Um, all these sort of networks have been kind of set up. Um, there's also been the fact is within the activist movement, when this crisis, um, first started, um, around when it was first known around March, many activist organisations already self-organised themselves to actually postpone their events and postpone their protests. They didn't need the state to tell them to not hold their protests. In in reality, actually, it would be impossible to actually hold these events that are cancelled now with the new restrictions in place. But, yeah, I think that's kind of like an example of um, the people kind of powered kind of response and showing the power community. And we actually even saw this in the midst of the bushfire crisis. It wasn't the state that was serving people's interests. It was actually the community acting um, um, to stand up for others. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's this myth that uh, humans are, you know, greedy, self-serving, self-serving, and um, you know, we we are these sort of, I guess, dumb cattle that need to be herded from above. Uh, you know, it's not the case, and this kind of myth is very much um, it, it, uh, it's the government is serviced by this. Uh, and I think this whole self-organising, as you mentioned in the bushfire crisis and also in COVID-19 crisis, I mean, I'm a part of a, um, a Facebook page um, 
that basically uh, matches people who need help with people who can provide help. And this was a spontaneous thing that popped up. I mean, I've been doing grocery deliveries for people who are in isolation, uh, you know, delivering to elderly, immunocompromised people. Um, there's a whole bunch of, a whole network of people who are doing the same thing. And some people are, you know, putting um, just on their own, you know, of their own um, the initiative, they're putting messages into letterboxes within their community saying, if you need help, let me know. I can help you. Uh, this is the kind of thing in the self-organisation that I think is the foundation of the type of world that we want to bring about. And this is the kind of thing that we need to utilise um, to, to bring about this kind of positive change on a different level, not just a base community level where basic needs are met, but what about, you know, in our organisational structures, etc.? Um, these are the kinds of things that could be quite dangerous to the corporations and the governments who don't particularly want us to have any kind of power. But this is the, I think this is the real nature of human beings. And I think it's a fantastic and positive initiative that's going on across the world. And you wanted to say, um, comment a bit on this? Um, uh, yeah, just that. It was really heartening around the time of people having knife flats over toilet paper to see all these <laughs> <laughs> to see all these mutual aid groups uh, springing up. So yeah, I very much agree with what Megan says, and I think uh, we've got this sort of window of opportunity now, not just for mutual aid, but also for political organising. People are kind of at home. Yeah. And uh, I think some of these sort of temporary measures that have been implemented, like the increase to New Start, um, are the sort of thing that we can campaign to make permanent. And there's this sort of window of, of opportunity now. And and to look at what, what are the recovery measures. We're probably going to have some kind of recession or depression. There's probably going to have to be uh, public investment and state initiatives to sort of reboot the economy after the lockdown finishes. What does that look like? And I think there's a real window of opportunity now for people to kind of consolidate and grow political networks and really try and push to, um, yeah, reshape politics in a much more progressive direction. And that's a good thing. Yeah, Megan, you want to say something? Yeah, um, I think just in what, um, you know, what the left can be doing in this time of crisis. Um, I first want to make a comment about... Um, Observing some already some societal changes that are already happening from COVID-19, I'm noticing in my friends, my family, and my coworkers, there's been um, a, a growing dissatisfaction with the fact that um, we continuously have to bail out corporations in time of crisis. Uh, you know, it, it seems to be in 2008 in, in the global financial crisis that when corporations were bailed out, there were some grumblings, but it was seen as necessary. And now I think in, in the time of COVID-19, a lot of people are sitting up and going, why are we bailing out these corporations who are then laying off tens of thousands of workers? How is that serving the working class? Why are we not seeing the benefit of these stimuluses? It's literally just going into the bank accounts of the corporations and, and then going into the shareholders' bank accounts. We are seeing, I think, um, a rise in awareness 
of working class issues and the fact the fact that um, the system is trying to prop itself up, not necessarily trying to support people who are essential to that system. And I think the left needs to definitely take advantage of this rising awareness, this rising awareness of the um, the inability of capitalism to deal with these crises. Uh, because we saw in the bushfire crisis, uh, it was people who helped out. Um, you know, we're seeing in, in, in the COVID-19 crisis, it's people who are helping out. The money is not necessarily getting to where it needs to be. And as I said, this rising awareness is an absolutely unique opportunity for us moving forward, both during this crisis, but also after the crisis. You know, what kind of world do we want after this crisis? Do we want to go back to normal? Most people don't want to go back to normal because normal wasn't working for us. Hmm. And so we have to present the type of world that we want to have, present that to people, have them see it as a viable alternative, promote that world and get people working towards that world after this um, because it's so very important. We have such a unique opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, I think, Megan, you're, you're completely right there. And I think one of the, the issues, I guess, living under a capitalist system is, you know, we see all these kind of amazing things of, of um, amazing feats of humanity of people self-organising themselves, looking out for each other, etc. I mean, I, I, remember I saw this um, amusing tweet about how um, someone mentioned how their, um, how their mother, who is like a, a retired nurse, um, has, is actually taking more work um, than she actually needs, needs to take um, to help out for this crisis because she sees it as a moral duty to help out this crisis. Meanwhile, all these billionaires, the supposed wealth creators, are basically just panicking and trying to hoard up as much yeah. of their wealth as possible um, in case they lose it as a result of, the, of a, a recession. And so I think really what this crisis poses is it poses the need for a social society. It poses the need for working people um ordinary people to actually have control of the vast amounts of wealth and technology and production in society. And it shouldn't be held to the whims of, um, of, a, of the capitalists or, or some boss or some CEO. It should actually be um, controlled by people. Like imagine like as sort of um, Zane mentioned that book about the People's Republic of um, Walmart. Imagine if all those Amazon workers they had they had democratic control of of the vast apparatus that um, um, Amazon represents, and in fact, a, a, a company like Amazon would be able to serve a lot of people's basic needs um, and would be well equipped to serve people's basic needs in this sort of crisis kind of period. But of course, they're trying to make as much of a profit um, as possible within this crisis. So they, what they could actually do for ordinary people is actually limited by that profit um, motive. Yeah, um, look, it's interesting about what kind of world we want afterwards. Um, Zayn and I were having a chat before the show about um, the fact that, you know, look, obviously the, the, uh, the, the climate crisis has not gone away. It's still there. It's still a huge issue, but we're just at the moment distracted by the COVID-19 crisis. But, you know, however long this lasts, you know, it could last six months, it could last 18 months, it could last two years. 
that delays action on the climate crisis. And we were talking about what kind of um, world we want afterwards. And Zane had some good points about um, having the Green New Deal or some kind of Green New Deal, which included publicly owned um, building of publicly owned infrastructure in order to provide a stimulus package um, for the end of this to try and mitigate that, um, you know, that depression or recession that we're going to see. But also to start in a serious manner um, implementing changes that we need to address the climate crisis. I'm wondering, Zane, you had some great things to talk about that. Did you want to maybe um, have a chat about what you might um, you think might we, we might be able to do? Yeah, well, I just think the, the Green New Deal, um, I don't know, some on the left are critical of the Green New Deal and they think that it's uh, some kind of capitalist co-option apparatus or something but I, having been involved in the climate movement over many years I think that the Green New Deal is actually the sort of uh, crystallization of a lot of the ideas that the left of the climate movement have been talking about for a long time which is that we don't want carbon trading we don't want these market mechanisms we don't want a carbon tax we don't want these kind of um very gradual market-based ideas, what we need is public investment in publicly owned renewables, public transport upgrades, grid upgrades, public housing, uh, and that's how we're going to have a worker-friendly um, transition away from a, a fossil fuel-based economy to, to something that's in the ballpark of... Uh, you know, being sustainable, and and there's a there's a strong argument that you can't actually um, solve climate change and and have real sustainability unless you get rid of capitalism, because capitalism is about maximising profit and turning all of the world's natural resources into a commodity that can be burnt or cut down or whatever to make immediate profit. So. Uh, but a Green New Deal is a big step in the general direction of where we need to be going. And I think Corbyn and Sanders uh, have really popularised this idea. So it's not this kind of fringe thing that's only of the far left. I think the Green New Deal is something that's it's on the radar. It's in the public consciousness. And now we've got this situation where after the lockdown... We're going to have to try and rebuke the economy. There's going to need to be public investment to get the economy going again. And the Green New Deal just makes sense. It's just a logical, big public works program that's that's ready to go. Um, we've already kind of been talking about it. We've already got an idea of what this looks like. And I think counterposed to this, and probably what Morrison is going to try and potentially push for, is what you might call... Uh, austerity plus um, fossil disaster capitalism. And that's where the increases to New Start get wound back. There might be some investment in public works like, you know, tunnel and road projects and maybe a little bit of rail, maybe a little bit of public investment in schools and hospitals, but nothing of the scale that is really needed to to get through this backlog of underinvestment in public um, uh, services and, and utilities um, and then parallel to maybe a little bit of public investment 
um, and a winding back of the new start increase in some of those measures, you might also have the abolition of environmental laws and um, an expansion in oil exploration and fracking and new coal mines. Um, and so Morrison and Co. might talk about, you know, uh, the, the, the market needs to lead the recovery, the economic recovery as, as we go forward. So I think there's a real kind of probably battle line emerging going forward. And if we miss um, this opportunity to have a Green New Deal, I don't know, maybe there is a lot of investment in in roads, maybe a bit of rail, maybe um, maybe more big handouts to corporations, and but not a Green New Deal. And that's a problem because if we have a big sort of Keynesian stimulus in anything other than a Green New Deal, it's going to it's going to push a Green New Deal off the radar for another 10 years or something. Governments will say, we've already spent all this money. We don't have any money left for a Green New Deal. So I think it's really important coming out of this that, that there's a concerted push for a Green New Deal. And some people on the left don't like Green New Deal. They don't like that language. They think it harks back to uh, a certain political situation that that is problematic that's fine whether it's called a green new deal or called something else whatever but the the general idea big investment in in public transport public housing grid upgrades publicly owned renewables it's just a really obvious kind of way forward as a a raft of public investment to to get us out of this crisis and and back on an even footing yeah I think, you, I think you make a number of good points there, Zane, because I think coming out of this crisis, um, um, while it seems like um, everything's about COVID-19 right now, but I think an important link to be made um, with this and the, um, in the client movement is, you know, the origins of COVID-19 actually lay in our industrial farming practices, which actually links very keenly with, with the environment. Um, we cannot expect, um, in fact, these kind of pandemics could likely get worse because we don't know what other new diseases are going to pop up as a result of species extinction, as a result of, um, of the changing, um, the changing weather patterns that we're going to see as a result of the climate crisis. So I think, yeah, the main immediate priority for the left needs to be coming, um, to, to fight for an ecological program that pushes towards public ownership, um, 100% renewables um, and investment of public transport, all these demands actually need to be met. Otherwise, we're going to be, the crisis is going to get things worse and we'll be facing more pandemics um, like this. Um, and I think, you know, I wanted to kind of talk a bit a bit about, um, I guess, some of the, the things about the response of the existing left movement. And I think it has been, I think, while there has been some good work done by um, the likes of United Workers Union um, and some, and there might be some other trade unions, I have found the response of the trade unions to this crisis to be quite disappointing. And in fact, I think what it speaks to is um, it speaks to the limitations of the fact that the ALP um, offer absolutely no alternative um, in this crisis. In fact, the ALP's biggest criticism of the Liberal Party is. Um, they're not working enough with 
the Labor Party on, um, and Scott Morrison's obviously putting forward this message that we're all in this together. In fact, he said on live television that there's no unions, there's no bosses anymore because we're all in this together. And I think the, it's unfortunate that the whole trade union movement, the trade union movement, with the exception of um, a radical minority within the rank and file, has basically fallen behind this this class collaborations approach because they essentially the unions are at this position where they have no confidence in their own independent power to actually assert anything more than just simply lobbying the government for better measures um, in the stimulus packages that are already existing. And I think that is going to be a real weakness and um, for us, for our side, unless we can build trade unions to be independent working class organisations that actually act independent of the existing um, existing capitalist parties. Yeah, for real. And I think as a CFMEU member, this has been uh, mm, the CFMEU pushing to keep the construction industry open rather than do what's absolutely the safest thing for its members and the public as a whole, which would be to shut down all non-essential construction sites. That to me points to the weakness of the CFMEU in terms of for quite a while now, for many years, the CFMEU has had this very kind of economist approach where they only focus on on-site pay and conditions and safety. And to their credit, <laughs> until COVID-19 came along, the CFMEU did have a reputation as of taking um, safety on work sites very seriously and, you know, being willing to, to go on strike to make sure that work sites were as safe as possible. Um, so it's not like they're doing a completely bad job of um, in in taking that economistic approach of only focusing on on-site issues. But I think a real weakness of the CFMEU has been revealed here, and I think this is true of other unions, that they just leave, quote-unquote, politics to the Labor Party and they don't take a stance. So you don't see the union, you don't see the CFMEU coming out and saying, if we're going to shut down construction sites, we need a wage guarantee, we need a wage subsidy of 80% of what our workers would usually be paid so that they can go home and still be able to pay their uh, rent or mortgages. Um, instead of the CFMEU coming out and publicly calling for that type of thing, they're only, um, they're like a one-trick pony, they're only trick in their arsenal is to say we need to keep construction sites open because that's the only way that they can conceptualise of looking out for members is to keep the industry open and it's created this very problematic situation. We're lucky at the moment the COVID-19 rate seems to be falling in the community, not thanks to construction sites being open but thanks to everyone else self-isolating. But yeah, I think it's it's a problem when unions confine themselves to only talking about what happens within the factory gates, as it were, and does not take a very vocal stance on broader political questions, then in a situation like this, unions are a bit flat-footed, like, what do they do? So, yeah, I think this really points to the importance of unions acting as independent voices of working-class interests and not just leaving that to the Labor Party who as we've seen, are quite useless. Yeah, and I think, yeah, really, in summary, I think um, 
we need to build uh, um, in this crisis that um, the necessity to build a stronger left has, I think, never been more necessary. Um, we, and it needs to stand um, for socialist ideas and also needs to be building independent working class power from the state. Um, and, and, and it's unfortunate that the unions aren't up to that task yet, but obviously we, we have to keep being active. We have to keep pushing um, for action within our trade unions. We have to keep pushing for action within our social move within the social movements. We need to be um, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, and yeah, putting forward these ideas that, you know, another world is possible and that we need to have democratic control of our, of our wealth. Um, now, I guess we'll finish up, I guess, here a bit of our discussion. Um, I'd like to go move on to a bit, um, it's time, I guess, a bit for the activist calendar. I'll just play a quick announcement uh, and then we'll move on to our activist calendar. The St Vincent's Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. Call 9231-3365 or visit stvfoundation.org.au. St Vincent's Foundation is a 3CR supporter. Feminism and class struggle. If you like our work, become a supporter of Green Left Weekly from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time, and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio, um, and I think it's just about time um, for the activist calendar. Um, even though we're living in a bit of an online world now, um, there are actually a number of events um, coming up. Um, and um, the only issue is it's a bit hard to sort of um, announce links to Zoom meetings over. So I'll just give the details and I'll redirect people to the appropriate pages where you can find the events. Um, so happening this Friday, um, this is actually an in-person protest, but there's going to be a car cavalcade um, and basically to attend this protest you basically need to have your own car and you can have one passenger and that passenger has to be someone you live with as per the social um, distancing kind of restrictions. It's a card cavalcade against um, the detention of refugees who are held on the March Bell Hotel. Um, so this is going to be starting at the March Bell, um, Bell City on 215 Bell Street um, and it's happening from 2pm. Um, the, the protest has had a number of um, um, attacks by the police. In fact, the police have been threatening um, the protests with fines. But I think, yeah, this is going to be, I think, a really important protest that if people are willing to kind of take the risk, I think it's a very important issue to stand up for the refugees who are held in the March Bell Hotel and we need to be putting the pressure on the government to actually free um, the refugees. 
Um, the next um, um, is there's going to be on Saturday, um, there's going to be um, an online forum um, titled um, at 2 p.m. Um, titled COVID-19 and the Global South. Um, so that's going to be happening from 2 to 4 p.m. over Zoom. Um, and it's also going to be live streamed on Facebook. And it's organised by Green Left and Socialist Alliance. Um, and it's basically... Um, will feature a number of frontline socialists from different countries, such as India, Malaysia, the Philippines, and um, Indonesia. Um, and yeah, to find out the details um, of how to get onto the Zoom link, um, just go to the Green Left um, or Socialist Alliance Facebook pages, and you'll be able to find details on um, how to get online and be part of the um, be part of the discussion. Um, Another another event um, that is happening is um, there's going to be a refugee action collective um, forum, global refugee struggles in the era of um, COVID-19, and that's going to be an online forum on Tuesday, um, 14th April. Um, if you search on refugee action collective um, website, so it's Tuesday, 6:30 to 8:30, and if you just go on the refugee action collective Victoria website um, Facebook page, you should um, you should be able to find a link to the Zoom. And then on Wednesday, there's going to be a forum organised on workers' rights by Socialist Alliance and Green Left. Um, yeah, the same deal. Just go on the website um, to find the details, and that'll be happening from 6.30 to 8.30 online on Wednesday. Um, I think there might be some other events kind of happening, but, yeah, those are sort of the main sort of events that are kind of happening. Um, and, yeah, um, I'll, um, yeah. Um, thanks, um, thanks for everyone for listening. Um, it's been a, a great program and, um, yeah, we'll hopefully all see you again next Friday. Yeah. See you then. See you then. Whee! This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.